0: I'm Nia Clark, and this is Dreams of Black Wall Street.
1: Every student, every Floridian, every American should study and learn what happened in Rosewood in 1923. The work that Sherry and others are doing should be uplifted and promoted far and wide. Because Rosewood, and as Janie Bradley just reminded us, Rosewood tells us where we came from, the winding road we have traveled to get here, and where we might go as a nation in the future. For the survivors and their descendants, Rosewood 1923 is not some distant historical event. It will live on forever. Our duty today, everyone in this room, is to make sure that the historical burden that the survivors and their descendants have carried for so long is no longer a weight that they alone must or should carry. Our duty today is to stand in solidarity and recognition with the victims, the survivors, and their descendants to honor them by saying that we will never allow something like this to happen again. It's the least we can do. We're often urged to emulate the examples of our cultural heroes, men and women, such as Benjamin Franklin, Theodore Roosevelt, or Rosa Parks. I submit today that we should also emulate the lives of the survivors of Rosewood. They are the truest Americans. They faced the armies of the night not distant terrorists from foreign lands, but their own neighbors. And they lived to fight another day. One spring day in Tallahassee in 1994, they changed the course of the state's history simply by telling their stories. Their survival is a testament of hope and courage we can learn from. Now, there are those who argue that we should forget Rosewood. There are others who cancel us to stop studying black history, even to abolish Black History Month. Cynthia Tucker wrote a piece in the Atlanta Journal of Constitution the other day, right? right? My response to this can be boiled down to two words. Never forget. Never forget is the eloquent statement of those who teach us the vital lessons of the Holocaust during World War II. Now, no one in their right mind would make the claim that we should stop studying the Holocaust because it makes some people feel bad. No rational person would suggest that we stop teaching about the Declaration of Independence because it might be too controversial. There's no reason to countenance for one moment the notion that we should stop studying black history. Yesterday, the Attorney General of the United States, Eric Holder, said the following. Quote, we must endeavor to integrate black history into our culture and into our curriculums in ways in which it has never occurred before, so that the study of black history and a recognition of the contributions of black Americans becomes commonplace. Yes, studying black history means that we must come to grips with the worst moments of our history, moments like Rosewood, 1923, the centuries of slavery, segregation, genocide, and lynching. One such moment occurred right up the road here in Lake City in 1864, and was described in a letter written by Sergeant William B. Johnson of the 3rd United States Colored Troops. He wrote, Lake City, Florida is the next place that we will inspect. And this, he wrote a series of letters uh, back to his family about the experiences that the Third United States Colored Troops had uh, in Florida. The town is small, and you can ride around it in two hours' time. The inhabitants were inclined to be civil, and most of them did all they could for us. This is in the middle of the Civil War. One particular and interesting feature in Lake City is a pond about a mile from the town, where the rebels drove the blacks into in the summer of 64 to keep our scouts from bringing them into our lines. Many lost their lives this way, but thank God they had their time and now comes ours.
0: just heard from Dr. Paul Ortiz, who was giving a lecture on February 19, 2009, when the Rosewood Traveling Exhibit was displayed at the historic Thomas Center in Gainesville, Florida, which is a cultural event center. Other speakers at the event included Aaron Friedberg, Janie Blake, a descendant of Rosewood survivors, and historian Sherry Sherrod-Dupree, whom you first heard from in the first episode of this season. Professor Ortiz is the director of the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program at the University of Florida. This recording is courtesy of the Samuel. Proctor Oral History Program. Professor Ortiz is the author of a number of books, including Emancipation Betrayed The Hidden History of Black Organizing and White Violence in Florida from Reconstruction to the Bloody Election of 1920. He teaches undergraduate courses and supervises graduate fields in African American history, Latina, Latino, and Latinx history, and other topics. You'll hear from Dr. Ortiz again shortly. The predominantly African-American Greenwood neighborhood of Tulsa, Oklahoma, was not the only so-called Black Wall Street in the early part of the 20th century. There were a number of thriving Black communities in the early 1900s. Some were also known by the moniker Black Wall Street. These were communities that were very much made up of working people, which some say resembled middle-class prosperity. Some of America's first Black millionaires called these communities home as well. However, many members of these villages, towns, and cities were made up of economically independent or upwardly mobile Black people, though it was not uncommon to find Black Americans of different classes or income levels living in these communities together. Nevertheless, this was no small feat for African Americans of this time. Segregation, Jim Crow, racism, and corruption made it next to impossible for many Black Americans to pull themselves out of poverty, not to mention slavery was only abolished several decades prior. Black Americans who lived through this era weren't given most of the protections and did not get to enjoy many of the liberties American citizens are entitled to in the Constitution. Predominantly, Black communities began to take shape as Black Americans became more politically engaged and economically mobile as a result of Reconstruction. However, an aggressive and often violent backlash to the improvement of the conditions of African Americans began to take hold in parts of the country, particularly the South. Unfortunately, wealthy, well off, or financially advantaged African Americans during this time often had targets on their backs. And because of that, many of these thriving Black communities were destroyed and many people in them were killed. Dozens of communities of economically independent African Americans experienced a tragic demise. One of these communities was the village of Rosewood, Florida. Black wealth was viewed as an affront to white supremacist ideology and the power structures of the day. However, even Black people who lived modestly were casualties of this violence. Oftentimes, attempts for African Americans just to rise above their station in life were met with resistance, no matter their income level. Those who subscribed to this draconian line of thinking often sought to maintain the racial hierarchy of the day through coercion and violence. They also believed that cheap Black labor, similar to the free Black labor Black people provided during slavery, was key to their socioeconomic expansion and success. Therefore, the economic success of Black people post-Reconstruction threatened an economy supported by cheap Black labor, as well as the unequal balance of power that empowered racists and segregationists. In order to maintain this power structure, laws and harmful practices were often employed to either destroy Black wealth or wealthy Black people, or make it nearly impossible for African Americans to pull themselves out of poverty, debt peonage, convict leasing, and wage suppression. Another common and important means by which the status quo was maintained was through the political disenfranchisement of Black Americans, who were often coerced into voting against their own interests, if they were able to vote at all. Many African Americans who did not comply were killed. Additionally, policy was enacted to strip Blacks of what little political power they had and was given to them during Reconstruction, such as withdrawing the charter of a town or city so that the municipal governments could be dissolved and those cities or towns could be run by the state. African-Americans developed methods of resistance, most notably through collective organizing around shared interests. They also formed secret societies, fraternal orders, and some engaged in armed resistance. Unfortunately, only a fraction of these communities exist today. Researchers estimate that a century ago, there may have been as many as 500 Black municipalities. Today, that number is fewer than 50. On the other hand, a large number of these African-American communities were outright destroyed, similar to Greenwood and Tulsa. Others were racially cleansed in such a way that saw entire communities of Black people run out of town, while the land they owned was either stolen or sold for far less than it was worth, plunging scores of families into cycles of economic hardship. These acts of racial cleansing were called white cappings. The creation of Rosewood, however, followed the emergence of Eatonville, Florida, which is among a few towns that claim to be the first incorporated Black community in America. However, one would be hard-pressed to find a better example of how much racists view these thriving Black communities as a political threat than the Ocoee Massacre, which is considered to be the largest incident of voting day violence in U.S. history. The Ocoee Massacre preceded the destruction of Rosewood and another racially motivated bloody massacre in the community of Perry, Florida, by several years. These events that preceded Rosewood are part of the Road to Rosewood, described by Dr. Ortiz as the backdrop of historical events and racial tensions against which the 1923 Rosewood Massacre occurred.
1: I'd like to talk very briefly about the road to Rosewood, the road to 1923, why the broader culture largely supported the massacre, what forces the survivors faced. Because studying the antecedents of Rosewood also gives us a much greater appreciation for those who provided sanctuary to the victims of the massacre. And this is a critical story that we we must never forget. Rosewood did not occur in a vacuum. It was part of a larger wave of anti-black race riots that occurred between 1917 and 1923. This national wave of riots was in part a response to the fact that black people were waging increasingly effective struggles against Jim Crow, against white supremacy. In 1909, for example, African Americans and a group of whites founded the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or the NAACP. Just a few years later, in 1915, they scored their first major legislative victory with the Supreme Court's Win v. United States decision. The Gwynn decision encouraged African-Americans across the South to undertake new initiatives to become registered voters. So this is long before the 1960s. And in Florida, there was a remarkable, organized voter registration movement. And it was led by people like Mary McLeod Bethune, James Weldon Johnson, these icons of Florida history, who sometimes we think is great writers, but they were also great organizers, too. Uh, Mrs. Bethune, in night, the 1920 election, the eve of it, she took a group of African-Americans into a room, actually not too much smaller than the room that we're sitting in right now, and she sat them down and she said, I want you to do one thing. She said, eat your bread without butter, but pay your poll tax. And if you had ever heard a recording of her, you know that she was very directive and she was a woman who knew what she was about. And you did what Mrs. Bethune said. So these were some of the things that were happening as a backdrop to, to Rosewood. This was an era which also peaked a uh, witness a peak in the amount of black land ownership. Janie Bradley referred to this uh, in Rosewood and it was in Rosewood, but not just Rosewood, it was all over Florida. Florida had one of the highest rates of black land ownership during this period of history uh, than any other state in the union. Successful black farmers marketed their crops in cities across the South, such as Jacksonville, Florida, and Durham, North Carolina, a city that W.E.B. Du Bois called the capital of the black middle class. In other words, during the period, we witnessed a rise in black entrepreneurship, there's the National Negro Business League, which is founded and led by um, a person I think you know, uh, T. Washington. Uh, I hope you've heard of him in, in history. So that the anti-black riots that occur between 1917 and 1923 were by and large aimed against black economic, political, and social advancement. The riots, for example, in the Arkansas Delta, which occurred in 1919, were directed by white plantation owners against black workers who were trying to create a labor union and a marketing cooperative. Dozens of African Americans were killed in the election day riots in Orange County, Florida, where in 1920, whites rallied to stop African Americans from voting. The Tulsa, Oklahoma race riot of 1921 claimed hundreds of lives and witnessed the destruction of one of the most prosperous black business districts in the United States. Uh, This is a community that Dr. John Hope Franklin uh, hailed from, and many of you know Dr. Franklin, who's the dean of uh, American historians now. The era also witnessed the invention of the modern motion picture. The most popular and technically sophisticated film in the age was D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation. How many of you have seen The Birth of a Nation? 1915. Think about it when it, when it. when it was first released, the impact that it had on popular culture was astonishing. People would get up in the middle of the film and, and, and cry and, and, and laugh, and, 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 and it had such a visceral impact. No one had ever witnessed anything like it before in American history. The core of the film attacks African-American political aspirations during Reconstruction, and it celebrated the Ku Klux Klan's assaults on black people after emancipation. It glorified the Ku Klux Klan. One famous scene, which I think is germane to Rosewood, depicted hooded Klansmen killing, killing United States troops in battle. An acceptable scenario to the general public because the troops were black. And so we had the first major motion picture in U.S. history in which U.S. troops are killed by the heroic Ku Klux Klan. Now, that's an interesting uh, interesting scenario to think about this th- this time period. Birth of a Nation, in fact, was a, nat- was a white nationalist uh, film. It was uh, promoted on the 50th anniversary of the end of the Civil War. According to civil rights historian Philip Dre, the first modern motion picture in US history, quote, carried Americans back to what now appeared to, as a simpler heroic time when a divided America had reunited and rediscovered its purpose by suppressing the minority populace in its midst. Birth of a Nation was based in part on Princeton historian Woodrow Wilson's A, P- a History of the American People. In 1915, President Woodrow Wilson heartily endorsed Birth of a Nation, and marveled like the film is, writing, is like writing history with lightning. And the reason I mention Birth of a Nation is its impact on Florida was pretty profound. African Americans in every town and city in the state protested and tried to stop this film from being shown. Because whenever it was shown in the Upper South, anti-black riots would break out. White people would come out of the theater, they would attack the first African American they they would run into. It, It incited race hatred. And so if you read black newspapers of the time in 1960, 1917, You'll see African-American uh, communities in places like Palatka. Palatka was a town I mentioned in Emancipation Betray. They actually stopped the film from being shown for a while. Now, I don't know if they were permanently successful, uh, but the film did show in Jacksonville and some other, uh, most other uh, parts of, of the state. But race riots, uh, it, it, the last thing I'll say, the birth, the birth of a nation, is it also helped spark the rebirth of the new Ku Klux Klan uh, at, at around the same time. The film was part of a larger mass media culture that routinely depicted anti-black violence as a necessary and even admirable dimension of U.S. culture. But race riots also fit within the histories of racism and colonialism in Western civilization. Philosopher Hannah Arendt observed that the brutality that culminated in the Holocaust was rooted in what she referred to as a long subterranean stream of Western history. Arendt wrote... When the European mob discovered what a lovely virtue a white skin could be in Africa, when the English conqueror in India became an administrator who no longer believed in the universal validity of law, but was convinced of his own innate capacity to rule and to dominate, the stage seemed to be set for all possible horrors. Lying under anybody's nose were many of the elements which gathered together could create a totalitarian government on the basis of racism. In the United States, the Indian Wars, many of which were actually little more than race riots, prove Arendt's theory. The following is a a brief firsthand account written by a Native American survivor during the long retreat in the aftermath of the Black Hawk War in 1833. He said the following. Early in the morning, a party of whites, being in advance of the army, came upon our people who were attempting to cross the Mississippi. We tried to give, uh, they tried to give themselves up. The whites paid no attention to their entreaties, but commenced slaughtering them. In a little while, the whole army arrived. Our braves, but few in number, finding the enemy paid no regard to age or sex, and seeing that they were murdering helpless women and little children, determined to fight until they were killed. As many women as could commenced swimming the Mississippi with their children on their backs. A number of them were drowned, and some shot before they could reach the opposite shore. In closing, it is important to remember that there always have been European-Americans who took courageous moral stands against the race riots and the massacres. The white families who offered sanctuary to their black neighbors in Rosewood hearken back to a proud tradition of those who refused to accept the immortal status quo of their time. And I want us to think about this briefly because sometimes when we talk to people about an injustice that, uh, an injustice that occurred many years ago, sometimes you'll hear people say, well, that's just the way things were back then, right? As if people back then had no moral choice. And yet we know that these, this small group of white families in Rosewood actually made a moral choice. They made a decision. Now they stood against the grain, but they made a decision nonetheless their example i think is equally vital to us i mean i talked earlier about the example of the survivors and their descendants as being role models for us and i think we can extend the same to the people who provided sanctuary i think that i think that janie bradley would uh, would agree with me uh, on that
0: backlash to increasing numbers of socially and economically upwardly mobile Black Americans that occurred in the early 1900s was a response to the organizing around shared interests that African Americans took part in as a form of resistance to Jim Crow, racism, and discrimination. This type of organizing sometimes took the form of secret societies, grassroots organizations, and fraternal orders. For decades, it seemed that the more Blacks learned to organize and resist, the more aggressive that backlash became, and the more it took hold in the socio-economic and political fabric of our nation. Here to explain further is one of the first experts I consulted before laying the groundwork for this season, and someone who helped me make sense of everything I was learning about this period in history, Dr. Mashid Madian. Dr. Madian is the director of the Meek Eaton Southeastern Regional Black Archives Research Center and Museum on FAMU's campus. Today, the museum director presides over one of the largest repositories of African American history and culture in the Southeast. Madian is also a distinguished publisher and researcher. His research interests include African American women in leadership in nonprofit organizations, the post structuralism revolution, emerging business models for African Americans serving nonprofit organizations, and audience development for minority serving institutions.
2: Was interested in history, I was a business major in Mississippi Valley State, at HBCU in Mississippi, and I kept taking history classes. My teacher, my professor came and said, you're writing or outperforming some of my history majors. What had you considered? I said, you can't make any money in that field. And But he convinced me that I had a talent, and so I switched over, and I went to grad school in Mississippi as well. And realized that there was a lot of history, our history, that's not in the history books. And there were a lot of white people in the classes that knew more about my history, what I would say my history, than I did. And my hometown, actually, was very historical and contributed a lot to blues, soul, and gospel music history and I wasn't familiar. My first real history job was at the Delta Cultural Center in Helena, Arkansas. And that sparked my real interest because there are a lot of stories that go uncovered, that go unaddressed, just like the one that you are researching. Matter of fact, I've researched a little bit more about the massacre that occurred in the Orlando area in Florida. And there are some direct parallels with the rest of we're going to say the Red Summer of 1919, but with Oklahoma and Florida, that's 20 and 21, and up to 22. But, you know, the pathways to unrest are very similar in all of these instances.
0: Well, so that's the point of this, right, is like you, I came to that realization after researching Tulsa, which then led me to research the Red Summer of 1919, which then led me to research other massacres. And the pattern I started noticing, right, that path to unrest, but more specifically, destruction among Black communities, essentially. There were, what I found were three main ways, which was what they like to call race riots, which were most of the time massacres of Black communities and Black people. There were also what they called white capping, which is when if they liked the land that Black people had, the property that Black people had, right. they'd figure out a way to run them out of town. This happened in dozens of communities
2: yes. across
0: the United States, and they would take their property. Oftentimes, Black people couldn't pay the taxes because they were run out of town, so the mm-hmm. land would go up for tax sale, and then they would buy it for pennies on the dollar, or they would just steal it. And then you have these communities, the the few Black communities, especially all Black communities that survived from a century ago when they were created. A lot of them, those that did survive, are nowhere near as prosperous as they once were. And a lot of times people say, oh, it's because of segregation, it ended, and then people left. Maybe that's part of it. But a larger part are these harmful policies that were put in place to further disrupt the economy of these, the redlining, the quote unquote, urban renewal. How many of these communities had highways built right through it?
2: It probably had a lot to do with partisanship, the political power and the population they were massing and where that community was positioned and the voting strength that it had. And we have to break it up because Of industrialization and because of the agrarian economies that was fueling the United States during that time in the uh, early 20th century, you have a large population of lower working class people. And they, at one point, could not vote. And at some point, of course, they can vote or did not want to vote or barred or disenfranchised. But once they start voting, Now you have a problem. Either you argue that the education wasn't at the level to allow you to give them the freedom to vote on their own. Uh, We need to step in, address poll issues, or we need to just completely disenfranchise them in some way or another, or get rid of them or gerrymander the districts and find a way so. One physical way to get around it is to throw a road right through and say, hey, that's the line. And you can't argue against a natural or man-made boundaries. These are are not written boundaries. And on a map, that's a physical boundary right there. And so people are going to say, hey, that's an obvious understanding. But it's not. It was planned and strategic. The railroad tracks in many cities serve as the boundaries between east and west, south and north, black and white communities.
0: What I wanted to talk about was this idea of resistance, but we're specifically talking about Florida, this idea of Black resistance, while it probably started in South Carolina- Miguel in 1526, where the first recorded slave rebellion happened, we start to see this theme throughout the history of the United States, but specifically with regards to Florida, because it has such, in my opinion, a unique history. It was under colonial rule by several different crowns, so to speak, for centuries. And so the way Black people were treated in Florida differed based on the colonial ruler at the time. And so it became a slave state officially in 1821, though slavery existed before that. The Spanish were a little more comfortable with the idea of free Blacks and permitted certain communities of free Blacks and certain conditions in which Blacks could be free, including fighting for the Spanish crown. So In your opinion, explain how this idea of resistance to these harmful policies that you just mentioned took root, really. And I think because San Miguel was so short-lived, we can really look to St. Augustine because this was the first European settlement in what we now know as the United States and the first successful one that didn't end in disaster.
2: Well, in Florida specifically, you have the influence of a Spanish heritage. You have the Native American heritage. Of course, African American influence, and the, these white settlers that are coming in that are taking advantage of Florida's a position to promote cotton, tobacco, connection to all parts of the hemispheres. You know, United States. You have New Orleans. You have Massachusetts, but you also have a a way into the southern states to distribute the wares and contribute to the Industrial Revolution, which is on the rise. So you have a, a, a nice pulse indicator of the rise of all classes, meaning the lowest classes would have access to monetary values that are greater than some other parts of the United States. So people could see a pathway, um, freedom, even if you're a slave, you're enlightened. You see and have heard of Native Americans contributing to their own success in some way. And you have African-Americans and Native Americans getting married and all of these relationships of independence and ownership, businesses sparking, businesses rising and falling. And so you're somewhat removed from a lot of the traditional Southern unrest that you come across in Arkansas, Mississippi, and Alabama. Florida was somewhat isolated and progressive. Matter of fact, to, to this day, some people still don't consider themselves from the South if you're in Florida. We're just from Florida. But as these middle classes and as these classes start to rise and you start to see levels of independence, it's hard to Retreat from that. You have a lot of religious independence as well. Coming from South America, you have a belief and understanding that the religious dogma and experiences throughout the United States do not match up to the power of the religion coming from South America, as well as the connection over into Africa, the understanding that these are chosen people not just the Jewish faith, and you get into anti-Semitism, but just the idea that there's a bigger pathway. So you have the religious element, you have the economic opportunity, but you also see just strength in Black identity. You can take a very good look at the Spanish-American War, the War for Independence in Cuba, and Tampa and Miami, and the presence of former colored troops, United States colored troops, and their involvement in the black identity, African Americans forming companies as militia, and contracting themselves out for the protection of people running for office that feel threatened or however, or going to say the Rough Riders down it Teddy Roosevelt down in in Cuba. Either way, you have this confluence of identity Elements, economic independence pathways. You have the religious independence that surpasses the white Christian idea that we've bestowed this opportunity to be worth religious wise. We know that the religion far out predates Christianity in the United States. So you have that. And now you have this upright African American man walking down the streets, either a military uniform or carrying a gun. He has money in his pocket to buy what he wants to. He's physically fit, well-spoken, and can buy what he wants to, whether that's land. And you're talking about the 1890s at this point. He's going to talk back to whatever he sees as wrong. So that identity politic is new, and it's frightful. So we have to implement Black Codes. If we're going to maintain this separation between white and black classes, we're going to have to find a way to remove this element. If you're the white planter class, remove this element of black rise. Otherwise, you're going to start to see this huge population of African-Americans begin to vote and begin to vote a certain way. And they're going to follow. And if they're not educated, which was the bigger fear then they're just going to follow the flow of Black people voting whichever way. And at that time, it was the Republican Party. And when you have the 1920s, 1919, 1921, the Republican Party with uh, the Black population was huge and powerful. You will also see that it was an opportunity during that time for the Republicans to take a lot of offices. And the Democrats maintain the KKK class. So.
0: And indeed, Black people did start to vote, where they could influence the makeup of their own communities, where they could. Mm-hmm ensure that their children had an education influence policy that would ensure tax dollars to fund that education. Speaking of education, Black people are reading, learning to read now, so they're becoming more educated, which is also very scary for those who wish to keep them in bondage, either physically or theoretically.
2: Yeah, we we really can't overlook the power of what you just said, the reading and education. During slavery, it was taboo to the point of death if we find out that uh, not a five or six-year-old, but a teenager could read, and that teenager could, could leave the plantation, influence others, look at the Nat Turner situation, his access to the Bible, Frederick Douglass his biggest form of resistance at that time as a youth was teaching other youths to read. And so and influencing others about liberation papers and essays and understanding. And so economic independence starts with your understanding that how money works, how the world works. If I don't have an understanding of how the world works, how this plantation I'm on, the value of me is 15 to 16-year-old male more valuable than the 40-year-old male. I look up to the 40-year-old male that is a patriarch on this plantation, right? Which comparatively now is 80-year-old, 70-year-old. But that seasoned 40-year-old is worth $300, right? I'm worth $800 to this plantation. If I'm a Black female, which is hidden, I'm worth far more. Because I can create a greater population. Because after the early 1800s, it was illegal for the slave trade to occur. So you have to create your population. So now, if I understand the economics and I can read about that value, things are going to change. Things are going to change for my family, my immediate family. So the fact that the HBCU started to spring up in the late 1800s, specifically as we talk about Florida, 1887, Florida A&M University, but Fisk, Nashville, and Hampton, and uh, Howard, all of the universities that had influence either by the land grants from the United States or the American Missionary Association, AMA, they saw that the pathway to economic independence was education, W.B. Du Bois. Couple that with the fact that Booker T. Washington also had a strong hold on the understanding of resistance, resistance by economic independence, by using your hands, by creating things, by understanding how to make shoes. Everybody needs shoes. Everybody needs a pot and pan. Everybody needs a skill. Everybody's cooking. So knowing how to be a blacksmith, a cobbler, knowing how to till land, your own land. And understanding how the money works around that is very threatening. The race rides in Arkansas was not so much about blacks against whites. Ida B. Wells uncovered one piece that you glossed over. We're talking about other places. It was the land loss and land flight element, the land theft. If you have 500 acres of land and it's full of timber. People from Virginia, North Carolina, come down and clear all that land so that you can plant. Use the slaves to dredge the swamps and make this land, this agrarian atmosphere, worthwhile and ready to produce and grow cotton, tobacco, what have you. I can only work possibly half of that or a third of that. So as that land grows over the next few decades, if I have the wherewithal and I can read or see the economic opportunity, maybe as a sharecropper, I can gather enough money or a tenant farmer to eventually sue my way to buy a piece of that unused land. There's another 300 or so acres of land out there. So that's what happened in some of these places. The economic independence element and the fact that the majority of the buildings, the majority of the roads, the factories, the plantation were worked, created and manned by African-Americans. So what happens when these populations of workers acquire servant leadership? Someone rises up and says, we can own our own factory. We can grow our own cotton sell it." and create our own commercial institutions and no longer be beholden to the white planter class. You have two problems now. You have African-American independence, wealth. They're able to buy if they want to. They don't have to deal with the commissaries and that exorbitant debt peonage situation and paternalism that you have to deal with. You have all of that now Threaten in reverse. Two, you have a cultural issue now. This is a class of people that you consider beneath you that are far more economically independent than you now. Now, three. What happens when the land that's purchased. Is either beside or away from the land that was left. See, you have the white planter class that needs to find replacements for those workers. And you don't have as many white workers. And like in Florida, in Tallahassee, when slavery, because of the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment, when slavery was illegal, you have 67% of the population that were freedmen now. They were not voting until the subsequent amendments, but you had a large working class. They were slaves, but now they're free. So once you have that working class that starts to buy property, build stores, make shoes, make pots and pans, open schoolhouses, and those types of things, then you Outnumber and remove the working class from the white planning class. So, what do we need now? We need black codes, we need derogatory Jim Crow memorabilia, we need primer books that depict African Americans and blackface because we need to find a way to keep the black population below second class. Yes, and so
0: just to go back to these, uh, the idea of where this economic autonomy comes from. It's born out of the ability that Black people had and the necessity that Black people had to create their own communities, right? There was segregation, so they couldn't live in white communities, but they needed to survive. So they formed these cohesive communities where they would help each other climb this socioeconomic ladder. So following the Civil War, you had all these all-Black towns and municipalities, I believe. Some researchers say 500 were formed or existed maybe a century ago. But either way, following the Civil War, you had all these all-Black towns and municipalities formed for those reasons. And in the post-Reconstruction era, one example being Rosewood, which is Mm -hmm. what we're focusing on as well during this podcast, but then you had even before Rosewood, the emergence of Eatonville, Florida, which is among a few towns that claim to be the first incorporated Black community in America. So can you briefly explain how Black Americans helped each other through these cohesive units they formed in these communities. I know you and I previously talked about these mutual aid organizations, right. but also they just had a necessity to have a more communal sense of living because they didn't have the same protections that white people had.
2: Right. So, well, I'm glad you mentioned protections. One of the mechanisms that created wealth throughout the South during this time in the post-reconstruction era up and through to the 1950s, was insurance. As a matter of fact, I remember my grandfather talking about insurance. The insurance man would come through and you would have an envelope, a section of your house nailed to just outside the door so the gentleman could come in and get that dollar and put it into a collection that allowed for burial assistance, medical assistance, A variety of things that the Black community was not protected with, right? We talked about protections. So the insurance companies that started became very successful. Now, along with the insurance companies, with that type of wealth, you start to have small banking systems. Now, with the the small banks and savings and loans type of banks, trusts and lending companies, you can help. African American star businesses. Now, the concept was something that had backfired from the white planter. On the plantation, there was a commissary. And if you needed shoes or sugar or wheat or whatever you needed all year long, you would go to the commissary. You were not allowed as a sharecropper or tenant farmer to go to the store in town. You had to buy what you needed from this commissary, and the planter would charge. 20 50 30 percent interest but the banking system understanding came from this commissary so as soon as the insurance companies had this independence that allowed the dollars collected from every african-american male and female in the region we can give you two percent interest on your loan three percent interest on your loan to the point where Booker T. Washington started going across the South, contacting some of these bankers, contacting some of these bankers and insurance companies to create a mechanism for fundraising for him. This is one of the places where he was fundraising for Tuskegee. These 500 black communities you were talking about. So some of these communities were not cities that were incorporated, but they were fully functional, independent Communities within a larger community. And so that's how you can identify that. If in your daily life you got your hair cut, you bought your pork, you bought your shoes, and you went to school and church, all within a circle of all Black owned businesses and institutions, that's a Black community. And there were far more than 500 across the South. But If you want to identify the growth and the wealth, a 500 is a good number. But this was a massive wave and trend across the South because in the 1920s, in the 1920s, you have to imagine the wave of African-American youth that are coming back from colleges. The HBCU systems started to spark up in the 1880s. And so these dentists and lawyers and businessmen are now 30 and 40 years old. And they have a sense of independence and understanding about the world. That's why you have in 1920s, you also have the Harlem Renaissance or the New Negro Movement. 1930s, you had the Chicago Renaissance because you have this massive influx of black wealth. The wealth is coming from professional independence. We don't need to go to the white dentists or the white doctors. As a matter of fact, Florida A&M University, where I work, there was a black hospital. There was a hospital on campus. From 1911 to 1970, there was a hospital on campus. And one of the doctors affiliated in the 1960s and 70s who's still living, Living, Mister Dr. Brickler, gave birth to 30,000 babies. So that means that if you were black in Tallahassee or in the region, you were not going to the white hospital. And that's one example of the wealth that the black community was bringing this one institution. But think about all of these other institutions across the South. If everybody was going to the black mortician and the black cemetery, if everybody was going to the black baker, if everybody was going to the black butcher, and that is what was occurring across the South, and it, it scared the living daylights out of the white planter class and the white citizens' councils.
0: We talked about how Florida has this unique history of really quashing any upward mobility among mm-hmm. you know minority classes, specifically Black people. And we saw this with the Koei Massacre, where this prosperous Black community wanted to vote, or members of this right. prosperous Black community wanted to vote. And this horrible massacre occurred as a result of one man trying to do so. And obviously, you mentioned how if your planter said, do not vote, if the, right. the owner of your farm where you worked as a tenant farmer or whatever, if he said, don't vote this way or don't vote at all you were you were not supposed to do that or else repercussions were expected to fall upon you. So in this way, a lot of black people were were forced to vote against their own interests and then ultimately started developing ways to resist this, one of them being what some scholars call the Florida movement, this voter registration movement that occurred in 1920 to try to register as many Black people as possible to vote in order to fight this system where they were disenfranchised politically, which also led to their economic disenfranchisement they had less ability to control not only their wallets, but all facet of their lives in an effort to what you said, keep them from becoming upwardly mobile. And so can you just briefly look at, for example, how that movement specifically is an example of the Black resistance that occurred, but then ultimately the failure of that movement is an example of the tragedy of this era where Black people didn't really have any protections. Ocoee was one incident that happened on voting day, November 2nd in 1920. But on that day, there were dozens of communities where Black people were attacked. Perhaps their entire community wasn't destroyed as a result of them trying to vote, Mm. but people were killed, certainly. People were attacked, certainly. People were driven from the polls in droves on November 2nd.
2: Right, and... and, and the COE was fortunate and unfortunate. For, unfortunately, we have the 30 or so that died that we know about COE. But the fortunate element of it is that it was so public and close to Orlando that we knew some of the players that were involved. And in that environment, you had white politicians, that were Republican, that were going to benefit they were going to benefit from black voters because black voters were going to vote Republican. So it benefited white politicians across the South to have black voters on the roads. If you knew that they were going to vote for the white Republican, if you didn't have any black candidates. So, and once you have a white Republican office, everything is fine. That's what's expected. We have the representation of the white community and everything. The status quo is maintained. That's fine. But when that white Republican politician can speak or begins to speak to advancements and opportunities and tax breaks and money falling back to the black community, we have a problem. When black registrations for black voters start to say, hey, can we run a black candidate as well? Now we have a bigger problem, but the powers that be in Florida felt comfortable that even though blacks were going to vote, they were going to vote the way of the larger white, the white thought of the time. But yes, throughout the South, you had Republican rise and the opportunity to place a bigger stronghold over the white democrats but the issue that the white planter class was afraid of at the time was the opportunity for money to start to flow back to create african american educational institutions and healthcare specifically the best example in florida was the founding of florida A&M university Lord AM University was the result of federal dollars being directed to black education, and it was through Republican measures. And that's because you had two black politicians. One in particular, Gibbs, was a black politician in the legislature and was able to direct money to black education. And so we don't want that to occur throughout the South. We need to make sure that Blacks are just going to toe the line for white America and support of their status. But once they start to look beyond that, then we need to get them not to vote. And you can't simply just say, don't come to the polls at that time. Once that enlightenment occurs, once you have an understanding of what can occur, Maybe some would sit down and wait, but any percentage is a poor percentage during that time because we have to remember the number of African-Americans in these communities at the time. The Great Migration occurred in the mid-late 1920s, 1930s, and 40s. So at this time, you still had a lot of these cities with a large, massive African-American population, freedmen former slaves, definitely in the 1920s. But, of course, the women weren't voting as much, even though eventually they, the 19th Amendment came along in 1920 to allowed them to vote. But the Black men started to see that tax breaks could occur. The local control, it wasn't the state control or the federal control, Opportunities that wasn't most important. It was the local control for us to start erecting businesses and to funnel money to start schoolhouses and to provide road access to the rural areas. If you have five hundred people in your small town and three hundred are African American, and you decide you want to direct some money to create roads as opposed to build a statue in the middle of town of a former general then your vote wins. And how can you argue against that? And you had platforms that started to spring up and people speaking about not just African-Americans voting, but Black mobility is what we're talking about. Black mobility and access. If I can get to and from my rural area to my business, or I can get my kids to school, then I can make a decision whether or not they need to be working for the planter or go part time during the year to school. There are a lot of decisions that can start to occur once local codes and laws are changed. That power, even on the local level, it threatens state opportunity because once you have those successes on the local level, what's the next step? Let's start to look and see how we can influence state. And we did have a state secretary of education at the time that was African-American. But those are the fears. And so that's the forethought. We don't need another Frederick Douglass popping up. We don't need a wave of Ida B. Wells popping up. Enlighten African-Americans, even on the local level. So South Florida, the population still had a mix. You had a low South American population at the time the majority of populations throughout the South in these rural communities that were outside of the municipalities were Blacks.
0: when we talked about the demise of these all-Black communities, one of the things that I see as another theme in this larger story that we're trying to tell is the erasure of Black life. And so we talked about in the beginning of this episode how erasing Black communities was one means of doing that, and so how do you think the almost disappearance, right, of these thriving Black communities that we saw popping up at the turn of the century in the early 20th century, in the late 19th century, how do you think the demise of these communities, the destruction of these communities, or the economic downfall and plight that we now see in the few that are surviving fit into this larger narrative of the erasure of Black life in America, and then the whitewashing of the historical narrative around that. And I think about what you mentioned, how you even got into this field, because you noticed that so many of our stories were not being told. And the key is, they're not even being told by us, because few of us know about them.
2: Well, the, the lynching season, the lynchings that occur or occurred during the South, physical, in-your-face, and eventually economic. And it speaks to the bold, in-your-face failure, bold, in-your-face mistake. So the massacre in Florida we talked about and on November 2nd, 1920, started with the lynching. And the bold, in-your-face, hey, do not do this, or this is what could happen.
0: The Ocoee Massacre.
2: Yeah, the Ocoee, I'm sorry, the Ocoee Massacre. So in Elaine, Arkansas, in Washington, D.C., and Jackson, Mississippi, and some of these other cities that also had major massacres to the tune of 30 or more deaths, there were lynchings that occurred. During this lynching season, as an example of what not to do or what could happen as a consequence of your upward mobility. Now we have to take a look at a different perspective as opposed to just history. Think about that kitchen table. Sometimes we look back and we look at the policy and look at what's been written in the newspapers. But if we look at it from an anthropological perspective or humanities, that kitchen table of the family, the wife and the husband at the table with the kids and they see that a lynching has occurred. It is, far more rare that you will have a family say we're going to stick here and fight than to just have a family say we need to leave I prefer to err on the side of caution and take my family to Detroit or take my family up north and work so that great migration occurred and the KKK and the white planter class they won we as the uh, the white power structure at the time We need to find a way to scare this population, disperse this population. We already see that they're not going to fully work for us. There's some mobility there. We need to find a way to completely change the landscape. So the lynching was one obvious way to work. But KKK and their mechanisms of riding around with burned crosses, you had some failure there and you had some identification. But if someone is lynched in the dark at night, and you wake up in the morning, and someone's hanging, you don't know necessarily who did it, but you do know that your loved one has died. And more than likely, it's somebody who's strong, someone who is virile. So it's going to be someone 18, 19, 20, 17 years old, because that is saying, we are going to stop your future. It was rare that you had an elder member of the community that was lynched, as an example, the value was different. And that is the old plantation value system. The youth was more valuable than the old. But, yeah, the insurance aspect, the economic themes are always some of the underlining, undergirding influences to the unrest that we witness.
0: When we tell these stories, when we tell this history, the economics aspect is always either excluded or simplified to the point where it doesn't even have a large significance in the story. So when we talk about lynching, right? We are often not taught how lynching connected to the economic interests of the white planter class in these agrarian societies at the time. It wasn't just to scare Black people. It wasn't just to brutalize Black people. But as you mentioned, it was a form of control to thwart the upward mobility of Black people. And so while it's not all about money, I just wonder what your perspective
2: is. The Pew Research Center Chronicle the lynching time frames. And it just so happens that the majority of the lynchings occur during harvest time. Just before harvest time so that we remind you don't start anything when we get to the table and we're talking about this money because we're the boss. So there's no coincidence that the lynchings occurred during the season where money was on the table. Now, race Played a part of it. Class, casting class, positioning. We need to keep you in your place. I don't believe that you deserve this. You shouldn't be a juror. You shouldn't be making decisions. And you shouldn't be marrying our white families, members. That has its percentage, too. If, it, if the scale was zero to 100%, it's going to be hard to say which one favors the other because they all influence enough. Just human instinct.
0: listening to this episode, you're probably wondering why I released three episodes at a time. That's because the next episode will be released on a very important anniversary in our nation's history. In fact, it'll coincide with what is known as the largest incident of voting day violence in United States history, and we'll explore how it relates to Rosewood. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform.